At 10 p.m. on a snowy April 2nd, 1993, 22-year-old Andrew Asher and Becky George sat in a parked car in front of her brother's apartment on Silent Road in Rockford, Illinois. A black man approached the car in a blue ski mask and a hoodie, and he opened the driver's side door announcing a stick-up. While Becky fished around in her purse and tried to offer the gunman the $60 she had, he shot Andrew Asher twice. Becky ran to her brother's apartment to call the police, and the two bullets and their casings were retrieved from the crime scene and during the autopsy. Through the use of incentivized eyewitness testimony, the coercion of a false confession, and grand jury testimony from Patrick Persley's girlfriend, Samantha Crabtree, testimony she later recanted at trial, and conflicting and misleading ballistics expert testimony, Patrick was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. With an epic appeals process that included Patrick getting a law change from prison in order to get new ballistics testing done that would ultimately set him free, Patrick Persley suffered for over 25 years for a crime he simply didn't commit. In March 2017, Patrick's conviction was finally vacated and he was released on bond. He was formally acquitted at his retrial on January 16, 2019. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. This episode was recorded at ComplexCon Chicago 2019, a culture, fashion, art, and music hybrid event described as a streetwear fans kind of world's fair, featuring limited edition brand collaborations, performances, and even the occasional live podcast recording like this one. We only had 30 minutes, though, to tell Patrick's story, so I'll be fleshing out some of the details along the way. Patrick Persley, this is going to be extraordinary because, uh, frankly, because of you. Because Patrick is my new friend. I've just gotten to know him. He's, he's an un- unbelievable spirit and intellect. But Patrick, uh, I want to say that I'm happy you're here. I'm sorry you're here. Thank you. Because you didn't, shouldn't never even have to be having this conversation, but I'm happy you're here. And your case has so many of the hallmarks, so many of the common factors that we see in wrongful convictions over yes. and over again. You had incentivized lying witnesses. Yes. Coerced, threatened witnesses. You had bad ballistics. Terrible ballistics. Right? You had people in positions of authority who broke rules, broke laws in order to railroad you. Tunnel vision is another factor, right? And by tunnel vision, what I mean by that is once a suspect is identified, in many cases we see that the police and prosecutors start to build a narrative, either consciously or subconsciously, and they manage to ignore or they subconsciously ignore evidence that points away. As yes. it did in your case. Yes. Alternative suspects, crime scene evidence, clothing, everything. Everything was contradicted. So Patrick Persley was wrongfully convicted of a brutal crime, a robbery of two people in a car, where the robber shot the guy sitting in the car twice and ran. And then things went downhill from there very Terrible. quickly. And Patrick, this, this was Rockford, Illinois. Rockford, yes. But you didn't know the people. You didn't know anything about the crime. No. Didn't even know it happened. You were home with your girlfriend when this happened. Yes. I was um, doing a belated birthday party for my son, and he came from Wisconsin. His birthday was on the 29th, and we were celebrating on the night of the crime, which was 4-2-93, and had a chemistry set for him. And we were just tinkering around and have no idea of these events happening just a few miles away. Now, meanwhile, there's another aspect of this that's important to recognize, which is Crime Stoppers, right? In theory, Crime Stoppers, great thing, right? People call up, they they talk about a crime, they make us all safer, they get a reward. But in your case... Except... Except when they do it, like in Patrick's case, where someone called up who knew nothing about the crime, 
and just gave up his name in order to get $2,650. Yeah. The price right? of life. Right. Yeah. About $100 a year for the time you were yeah. in. The price yeah. of life. So all of this must have come as a tremendous shock to you when, and it happened in stages, right? When yes. you first, first you became aware that you were a suspect. Can you get into that aspect of this whole thing? I was taking my daughter and my son to a birthday party and um, the police tried to apprehend me. And unfortunately I was uh, ghetto bred, so I fled. And um, that's how it started. That was June 10th, 1993, about 10 weeks after the crime. Two days earlier, on June 8th, Marvin Windham, a man Patrick knew from a few small-time weed deals around Rockford, was the first one to point the finger at him in a call he made to Crime Stoppers. It was later revealed at trial that not only did Marvin have eyes for Samantha Crabtree, Patrick's girlfriend, but he also received leniency on a number of charges that he faced in exchange for his testimony, not to mention the $2,650 reward. With Wyndham's hot tip, the police now were able to get a search warrant for Patrick and Samantha's apartment, where they recovered a Taurus 9mm that Samantha kept for protection. Notably, she always stored it out of reach of her small children. While Patrick fled on foot and the cops raided the apartment, they brought Samantha in for some aggressive interrogation, and I'm putting that mildly. They interrogated my girlfriend for like 12 hours. She was pregnant, you know just basically force-fed a narrative to her while disregarding glaring contradictions. And so your girlfriend was a pregnant mother of pregnant two mother. or three kids? Never been in trouble. Three kids. Three Never kids, been in trouble pregnant, pregnant mother. So she's a target for 12 hours and the police tell her that if she doesn't tell them exactly what they want to hear... She won't see her children until she's 40. So here's how this unraveled. So they, they take her from directly from the interrogation room to a grand jury where they make her repeat the story, right? right? Now get she's under oath, right? Get her on record, get her under, you know, as substantive evidence, come in later. So she tells them what they want to hear, and her girlfriend, to her everlasting credit, stood strong, took it back. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so as soon as she was out of custody, she filed an affidavit with my attorneys and said she was coerced. Uh, basically took back her statement, but in Illinois, there is no take backs. Now it's called perjury. It's right? called perjury. It's called uh, come in at trial, substantial evidence. Then you say this under oath, and it comes in as evidence of guilt. Your girlfriend ended up spending two years in prison. Because she didn't go along with the narrative and took it back. The narrative of her terrorized, spoon-fed, and patently false confession and her grand jury testimony was that she and Patrick were having financial trouble and on the night of the murder they were driving around in search of a house to rob when Patrick told her to stop on Silent Road, hopped out of the car, put on a blue ski mask, told her to keep the engine running and ran off toward the apartment buildings. Then, a few minutes later, she heard two gunshots and Patrick returned to the car carrying a Taurus 9mm. Hours before being threatened with a life separated from her children and regurgitating this narrative for her false confession, Samantha's apartment was being searched by the police, where photos were actually staged. There were staged photos of her Taurus 9mm being stored in plain sight for ease of use. The whole gun situation, as far as like pictures of where the gun was, it's like I had children in my house. I'm not going to have a gun in plain view where a 10-year-old could get it. It just wasn't 
just the whole narrative of how it was put together was so farcical. It was, it's just crazy. But early on, you had, you had a lawyer who actually made one move. That made one move, changed course. Saved your life. Yeah, so every defendant, I think in the course of America, says, I didn't do it. Uh, I had a young lawyer who was beginning his career, and I was his first death penalty case. And then I had the older lawyer who kind of just like, oh, I'm out of here. So the young lawyer and his pushback, right? You know, you didn't do it. Well, we'll test the gun. Really? You can do that? Yes, please. Test the gun. Test the gun. That's how it all started. That's what got me here. Ballistic testing is very important to this story. Ballistics is the study of the dynamics of projectiles or of the internal action of firearms. It can tell us what type of firearm was used, where it was fired from, how many shots were fired, and most importantly for this case, it can be used to identify a firearm by the markings left on bullets and bullet casings after firing. So, after both the state's crime lab and the defense's independent lab test fire Crabtree's 9mm and compare the bullets and casings from both the test firing and the murder, the prosecution's expert testified that the gun used in the murder was Crabtree's Taurus 9mm, and this is a direct quote, to the exclusion of all others. Powerful testimony. False, but powerful. While the defense's expert testified that the murder weapon was likely a Taurus 9mm, but not Crabtree's. However, the expert, hired by the defense, could not conclusively exclude the gun. So, think about this. You now have the state testifying with absolute certainty and the defense inconclusive in their exclusion of Patrick. This, along with Marvin Windham's incentivized testimony and Samantha Crabtree's initial false confession, brings us to where we know this part of the story tragically went. However, the ballistics testing becomes crucial again many years down the road. When the jury went out, You've now seen a bunch of dirty tricks. You've been around the system. You grew up, as you said, in the streets. So you know what can happen. You're a young black man at this point in the clutches of a system that is designed to chew you up and spit you out. I think Lupe called it planned convalescence. I think Lupe Fiasco called it that. Well, that being said, when the jury went out, did you have hope? Oh, yeah. I, I knew I didn't do it. I knew I was going home. And so when they returned a guilty verdict, I just... Um, I really don't even remember how I got back to my cell because uh, I guess the blood drained off my body or something. I just went body numb and, uh, you know, I couldn't believe it. I just, I couldn't believe it. It floored me. I don't think anybody here can possibly begin to understand unless someone else here has been through what you've been through. And now you're facing the death penalty, death penalty, right? Yes. So you come back for sentencing and the judge says... Because of the inconsistencies of the evidence, I'm not going to give you the death penalty. However, I will give you natural life. I'll find you'll be a minister to society. And uh, this is at a time where people were actually picketing for me to get a new trial. It was very strange, a very strange correlation what was going on. And that's just what saying was, we're not going to kill you quickly, but we are going to kill you slowly, right? Yeah, I'm having mercy on you because I see the BS and the evidence, but you're still gone, buddy. You're gone. There was a cry in the courtroom when he announced that. My daughters were there. It was uh, something else.
Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. You were sent to some of the worst, well, one of the worst prisons. Yes, Stateville. And uh, I went and got a job in the law library. I tried to play past the game banging and uh, the dice games and try to educate myself. I got a grant to correspondence classes in law. Is it as bad as everyone thinks it is? I'm a natural life survivor, right? So right now in the wintertime, all the locks are cut off the windows so the natives don't make knives. However, what that does, that allows your cell to have enough ice on. You can make a snow cone right off the bars and freezing temperatures, mice, roaches. So many roaches, you put a potato chip bag in the corner of your segregation cell and the roaches go in there and they can't get out. And so you hear kind of like the scraping, and that was the Roach Motel in the F House Panopticon. They actually, uh, it's a landmark. It's a landmark. And of the 2.2 million people in prison, there are a lot of them who don't have air conditioning. And 
I know uh, a guy who died recently in Texas prison. He told his brother that his brother said, why don't you have any sodas? You love soda. Why, you can't keep sodas in your cell. He said, I can't because they explode because it's too hot. Like, what the fuck even is that? Well, ice is a commodity. They might get one cup of ice in the morning, one cup of ice at night. Ice is a commodity. So you will deal with the elements. And uh, right around April 15th, they will turn off the heat every year like clockwork, despite the elements. Right. And Chicago, you, yeah, you got some elements here. Yes. God knows. So, and I'm always fascinated and amazed by uh, people like yourself who managed to you know, go through this ordeal as an innocent person and the extra psychological damage that that must do to a person who's undergoing the extreme physical hardships uh, and the loneliness and all the rest of it, the violence in the prison, we talked about it, the terrible food, et cetera, et cetera, the cold, the heat, and then you are there, you know, innocent. Forever. Innocent, right. My, I was done. All my appeals were done. I was done in court. Okay, it was so over with. That being said, you found this something, this inner strength, perseverance, whatever, however you describe it. And you, not only didn't you give up, but you had, and first of all, you had every reason to give up. Motion after motion after motion, denied, 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 denied. denied. All I needed was one yes. That's <laughs> all I needed was one yes, that's it. And how you got to that is a really incredible part of the story. So you're denied, denied, denied. Now, as I understand it, the law in Illinois at the time allowed for post-conviction testing of fingerprints and DNA, but not ballistics. Exactly. So in 2000, I asked for the testing. Uh, I seen an article in the Tribune about Illinois State Police now starts using the IBIS system, Integrated Ballistic Identification System, which uses algorithms to connect ballistics to crime scenes. So I was like, that can free me. I knew it could free me. It was, it was just that simple. And unfortunately, because the law didn't allow for it in 2000, 2001, why I asked for it, the courts was like, no, the law would have to be amended. The law would have to be changed in order to grant me the gun testing, which would potentially exonerate me. And that was 2001. Right. So you were stuck on a technicality, right? Because you knew that you had this evidence because your lawyer had tested. We go back to that, right? Yes. Your lawyer had had the sense to go and get the, the testing. Independent the testing. Independent right. lab. Independent lab. This lab had only testified for defendants four times. So now a lot of people would say, okay, here you are in the segregation unit of one of the worst prisons in America. Not a great education. You'd have a law degree. You didn't have a science degree. No. It would seem to be hopeless. But somehow or other, you managed to actually get the law changed from inside your cell. So... So long, long story short, um, it's 2006, I'm in Chow Hall, there's a, a warden, I would say a southern gentleman, maybe in past life he had slave ships. He sees my prayer beads and he says, are you allowed to have them, sir? And me being the sarcastic bastard I am, I buck up and say, yes, sir. So he looks at me and says, are you sure you're allowed to have them? I don't like your attitude. He sees the energy coming off me. I say, sir, yes, sir. And so he Gets a little closer in my personal space and the tar man's out with the gun. It's about 200 inmates. And uh, he says, I don't like your attitude. I said, we don't like your attitude either, sir. You brought much misery and suffering to the land. As a result, I went straight to segregation six months in some of the worst conditions in the United States. But while there, I had an epiphany and I wrote an article that became a state law. And what is that law? And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Here we go. So the law is 725 ILCS 5116-3 as amended October 27, 2007, signed by Governor Blagojevich. I should probably send him some money for commissary because he actually, he helped me. No, really, he helped me. I just, it slips my mind sometimes, but he helped me. He really did. He signed my idea to law. If you remember, back in 2009, Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich was indicted on corruption charges that included the alleged solicitation of personal benefit in exchange for Barack Obama's recently vacated U.S. Senate seat. <laughs> I remember that well. It was a bizarre episode. Anyway, he was later found guilty of 17 different charges, including wire fraud, attempted extortion, and conspiracy to solicit bribes, and sentenced to 14 years behind bars. But before he left office, he did sign Patrick's amendment into law. Now, back to the law. Bill Ryan worked for the Department of Children and Family Services as an advocate for long-term offenders. He had a newsletter that was circulated throughout prisons, as well as to families of inmates, to law professors in colleges, and even legislators and politicians. Mr. Ryan published the article that Patrick wrote about amending the law to include post-conviction ballistics testing through the Integrated Ballistics Identification System, also known as IBIS. In turn, Illinois State Representative Arthur Turner Sr. sponsored the legislation. You can imagine the letters that come from prison and so Bill Ryan, our, our long-term advocate, explained to me and Michelle, he says, Patrick, you just don't get it. I had a table full of letters. I reached down and grabbed one letter, opened it up. You asked me to give it to the senators, and I did. So it's completely, by the grace of the creator, completely fortuitous, anomalous, whatever. You think it was all just luck, huh? Yeah, right. Okay. No, I, I mean, the stars lined up or it's genetics, yeah, yeah, it's, it's a the creator, it's all the bub. It's, it's, a, it's a combination of everything. And so ultimately, the law gets changed. They right. open the jail doors, they let you out, oh, right? No, it's never. Not exactly. <laughs> it's, so the law gets changed. Illinois becomes the first state in the country to have this law in order to grant me the gun testing so the law gets changed and Jenner Block, which were in the shadow of my attorneys over there on Clark Street, who spent like $4.5 million over 10 years to get me exonerated. Well, first of all, let's not leave out. There are a lot of heroes in your story, right? A lot. Northwestern. I mean, none bigger than you, by the way. Not at all. But, and two of them are in the room, and I want to recognize Steven. Steve Drizzen and Laura Nyrider from the Northwestern uh, Center on Wrongful Convictions who have been steadfast supporters. They still yes. are. They're yes. your biggest fans. Yes. I mean, you'd be yes. embarrassed if you heard some of the things they said yes. about you. But anyway. So Rockford fought every step of the way. They, there was no like welcoming Reese for the conquering hero. It was none of that. It was more like my cousin Vinny. We don't take too kind of your kind around here. So <laughs> it was a long fight. It was a very long fight. About five rounds of gun testing showed the gun didn't match. And of course, no one admits mistakes in this world. So we had to fight, new trial. New trial, but new meanwhile, trial. now you're hitting your stride. I'm hitting my stride. We were winning motion after motion. It was just amazing. It was a, a momentum, if you can imagine, um, 10, 15 years of representing myself or you know, just trying to navigate the system. And uh, you're, you know, even, you're even starting to look like a lawyer. Did anybody tell you that? <laughs> I, I do hear that. Uh, I, I take my cues from Steve Drizzen. Yeah, yeah. I, I confess. So, as you know, the wheels of justice turn painfully slowly. 
even after getting the law changed in order to request new ballistics testing through the IBIS system in 2007, it took a tremendous amount of fighting in order for Patrick's lawyers to finally be able to present the new evidence from two different ballistics experts, excluding as the murder weapon, the Taurus 9mm, that same Taurus 9mm that was seized at Patrick's apartment. This all happened, finally, in December of 2016. And then, at last, his conviction was vacated and a new trial was granted, March of 2017, and Patrick Percy was released on bond that very April, and there he began to fight the new trial from the outside. In November 2018, Patrick's lawyers filed a motion for dismissal in light of a new bit of information that was not disclosed by the prosecution after 18 months. A story from Lois Asher, the victim's mother, that alluded to conscious wrongdoing by police in regards to the gun. Even though at a December 2018 hearing, she admitted that the story came to her secondhand through her now-deceased husband, it's still worth hearing, but did not result in a dismissal. There's another aspect of this case that needs to be mentioned, which is the story of the gun. So basically... The state's attorneys, once it came to realize that the gun didn't match, even the mother of the victim, right, had came forward and was like, look, the detectives told me and my husband back in 2000, that back in 1994, that they couldn't find a gun that killed their son. So they just put Patrick's gun into evidence. And when she asked, her and her husband asked, are you sure you have the right person? And they responded, well, we got one anyway, you know. There's a lot of victims in this case. The parents of the victim, right? Your girlfriend ended up spending two years in prison. My children, I can't even explain uh, watching what they went through. You know, all three of my children. You know, because every step of the way, they were my guiding light. They were my guiding light. So finally, the retrial is on in January of 2019. Despite the evidence pointing to the contrary, the state's ballistics expert continued to connect the Taurus 9mm seized at Patrick's apartment with the murder weapon. Meanwhile, the defense hired two of the leading forensic firearm and toolmark experts in the country, Chris Coleman and John Murdoch, who worked independently of one another, that's important, and arrived at the same conclusion. The markings made on test bullets in 1993 and 2011 by the Taurus 9mm seized from Patrick's apartment all matched and showed distinct similarities. However, the test bullets did not match the bullets and casings recovered from the 1993 crime scene. Therefore, the inescapable, and for the authorities in this case, the inconvenient truth was that the Taurus 9mm did not, could not have fired the bullets that killed Andrew Asher. Finally, your day comes, your day in court, right? right? How good was that day of vindication? Did you float out of the courtroom? Like, Well, it's really strange because um, as I'm caught up in these events, I realize all of this is bigger than myself. But I had to sit for a second trial. And even though I knew, I knew I was going to be found innocent, I really believed it, that everything came out. The judge it was very meticulous. He was very fair, right? but it was still very much like dangling your feet over hellfire because he could say guilty and you go back. So that's in the back of my head. So when I'm actually exonerated, when I leave the courtroom, I still have that goofy look on my face, like, right? So I still was numb, you know, it's like end to end because 
you really can't believe the gravity of the circumstances that you're caught up in. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. In the 25 years I've been working on these cases and on this cause, criminal justice reform as a whole, de-incarceration, mandatory sentencing laws, decriminalization of drugs, you know, my heart has been with the innocence movement for all those years. So I'm always proselytizing. The questions I get asked most frequently by civilians who don't realize until we talk about it that these wrongful convictions happen at the rate that they do, as I didn't realize until I found out. What happens to the people that did this to you? And we know the answer to that is nothing, almost always. Karma, karma's always there. Karma's a thing. And two, do you get compensation? That question gets asked by everybody. And people just assume, so when he walks out, tell me he got paid, right? The state makes it up to him. No. 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 I mean, Illinois has the statute but you have to basically go through another fight called a certificate of innocence. And then after that is another fight for the federal level for federal civil rights violations, which would be a wrongful conviction suit. So it's a process. No one, you know, like I said, there's no Reese for the conquering hero. It doesn't work like that. They fight, 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 because you're messing with people's careers. It doesn't happen like that. But it's so crazy because it's taxpayer money. It's not like they're paying it themselves. And in Illinois, there's a, there's a cap on how much you can get as well, unless you can prove a civil rights violation, right? Right, right. But all those things are beyond. They're beyond the kiln. That's all down the line. I have to fight a whole nother fight called Certificate of Innocence, just like the post-conviction petition. So it's fight after fight. But even then, the cap is, I think, going to surprise a lot of people how low it is. And Illinois is not the worst state by far. Right. But the cap it's here under, is what? It's under 200. I know it's about 120, something like that. Uh, under $200,000 for 25 yeah. years and seven 25, months in prison. Yeah. Right. And Complete that's after you fight, 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 fight. fight, et cetera, fight, et cetera. fight. The good news is we're moving, the Innocence Project has been really moving the needle on getting laws passed state after state, compensation laws. We're now up to 35 states that have them. There are 15 states that have no laws whatsoever. There's some states that have a max. I think Wisconsin right next door has a, a cap of $25,000. Right. So now you're out. Right. Making speeches. And anyone who has heard Patrick's story today, if you know another organization, corporate or otherwise, uh, that's interested in having him come and speak, that's how you're supporting oh, yeah. yourself. Now. I run my mouth for a living. This is what I do. You run your mouth I for a living? My, I can't do much else. Yeah, well, you could do that. So that's number one. And then the other thing is, you know, we're just out here trying to educate everyone. I mean, I ask everybody that's here to ask everyone you know to serve on a jury. Um, remember the things that you're hearing now when you're in that jury box. We know the research has now shown that jurors are predisposed to think that a person in the defendant's box is guilty just because they're there, 80% to 20%. So remember 
Patrick, remember what happened to him and how what you're watching unfold in front of you as you're holding somebody's life in your hands may not be what you're being told that it is. So there's supposed to be reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt. Right? And there's supposed to be a presumption of innocence. None of that worked in your no, case. No, it's a credibility deficit. There's a credibility deficit for a defendant walking in the door, period. And if you're poor, there's a credibility deficit. And if you're behind bars and you're fighting a case, you're not going nowhere unless you have an attorney. So pro se gets no play. Pro se gets no play. I want to ask you this question as we wind down, and I have one more question after this. Are you bitter? No. No, that's... I that's, thought that was a good question. No, it's... No, I'm hurt. I'm very hurt. You know, I have reservoirs of hurt. So seeing what this has done to my children, you know, it's like stepping outside of a time machine and not really connecting with nothing out here because I'm the analog man from 1993, you know? So it's really a, a very strange, you know, just surreal existence, but we make the best of it. We make the best of it. Um, you know, I am kidculture.org. Try to reduce gun and gang violence, promote higher education, want to organization I founded while uh, that's I am kidculture.org yes. and of course you're on you're on all the social media now too you, you hit yes. the ground running I mean you've only been out since January right. you got well, I was on social media before I got out that okay. was that was that was my thing I was a writer and Michelle helped propagate the stories and we had professors coming in and out of Stateville for years who was taking our material they were you know volunteers and they were taking our materials to gang peace circles high schools colleges Kid Culture actually was born in Stateville while I had a natural life sentence. Also, I, I have a book on Amazon also, The Adventures of Kid Culture in the World Explorers. We got t-shirts on IamKidCulture.org. Please support, 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 because we are trying to connect the Stop the Violence movement uh, across the country, show culture to culture. And one more thing, I got to ask you one more question before I get to the yes. last part. So. You did talk very beautifully earlier about the programs that you sponsored in prison and about the importance of education in prison. Yes. So basically, everyone knows how the grants got taken out of prisons. Well, we led a fight to reverse that. We had did charities in prison. Police laughed. We said, we're going to do hats for the homeless. So every time we tried to do something positive, people kind of like, yeah, right. Well, we still did it. So there was very much that persistence and also try to reach out to the community at large to show, you know, not just to stare the kids away from crime and educate college kids that were volunteering to come into Stateville, but also kind of educate the public at large. There's a lot of mismanagement and gross waste of money in the prison system. Well said, again. And I now come to my favorite part of the show, which is when I get to thank you, Patrick Persley, for coming and and sharing your story and, uh, you know, just for, for being here and being such a great example for everybody of, of the power of the human spirit. And thank the audience here for being here and listening. Of course, Laura and Steve, again, for everything you're doing and all the great activists in the room. And this part of the show, I call it closing argument. This is where I actually get to turn my mic off. Thank you once again. Thank everybody at home or on your device, wherever you're listening to Wrongful Conviction. Uh, please check out the other episodes. One story is crazier than the other, and you can learn something from each one of them. So now I'm signing off and leaving your microphone on, and I'm just going to kick back and listen. Patrick right, Persley. closing arguments. Remember, people, everything is and always is. It seems everyone has intrinsic value. Every one of us has value. 
And that has to be our mission to be able to teach compassion and love, right? So facing the worst possible conditions, you can still move mountains. And that is very much a testament to the spirit. And I have to thank Northwestern. I have to thank you. I have to thank Jenner Block, Prison Neighborhood Arts Project, Michelle, everyone that's been there every step of the way, because I'm a mess. I will tell you I'm a mess. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise that doing hard time in inhumane conditions that would be against the law for you to leave your dog in. See, think like that. So I always keep a part of me in the cell house, right? So right now, let's see, they're back from chow. You know, you have birds flying over their heads. You have spiders, you have mice. You have people who are loved, you know, loved ones of prisoners who are basically kind of get the scarlet letter for loving a prisoner. You see what I'm saying? So basically, if you have loved ones behind bars, write them. Holler at us at Wrongful Conviction Consultants. We trying to do something. We got a lot of prisoners. Talk to us. Holler at us. I am kidculture.org. It's a 501c3. Reducing gun and gang violence. Um, we did a mixtape. Imagine that 53-year-old man come out of prison do a mixtape. And no, I'm not rapping. It just tells the story of the wrongful conviction as well as the violence in Rockford, but also the hope. And always work for love. Always work for love. It is the highest vibration of the human spirit. And that's my closing arguments. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause. And in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.